You say, I didn't think people cried in heaven. No, there's tears in heaven. It's in heaven. We studied that God will wipe away our final tears. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We have reached the end of our study in the book of Revelation. We're in chapter 22, verses 20 and 21, and Dr. Brogy will look at Christ's final words as we dive into the passage. But for those of you who've not been with us through this almost year-long study, let's join Pastor Carl as he begins by giving an overview of the book. Would you take God's word this morning, please, and turn to the last book of the Bible, to the last chapter of the Bible, to the very last two verses of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. Today we come to the end of a long study, just about three years when we began this book called The Revelation. And some of you think, I must be dreaming. I can't believe we're actually here. Some of you thought it would take me to the end of the millennium to finish. But we are here. And today, we're going to look at the last words of Jesus Christ ever recorded. And so you can see the title of the message is Christ's Final Words. Remember, Revelation, there's a firm date. It's written 95 A.D., And these words even come after the special appearances that the Apostle Paul has, that those words that are given to him after Christ has ascended into heaven. Now, to give us a running start into our text, I want us to begin reading in verse 16. If you didn't bring a Bible, maybe there's a neighbor near you that would share theirs with you. You need a Bible today. You need one every week. This is a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-unashamed church. You need a copy of God's Word. If you don't have one, Come to meet the pastor, and we will supply you one. Revelation 22, beginning now in verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly, to which John responds, amen, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Now, I want to set the context of these verses, first the broad context, and then the immediate context. So I want you to go all the way back to Revelation chapter 1 this morning, Revelation chapter 1. We've seen in these last several years that this book is one of the most neglected, misunderstood, and misinterpreted book in all the Scripture. And yet, we just studied a few weeks ago in Revelation 22 and verse 10 that a command comes by God through his angel where John is told not, not to seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. These words, the revelation, are to be expounded. They are to be proclaimed. They are not to be kept under lock and key. These words are not to be hidden, concealed. They are to be preached and revealed because they are understandable. And so John has said, don't seal it up. We saw the exact opposite command to Daniel. Why? Because we are living in the church age, and the return of Christ has been imminent. We have been in the last days since 
the day of Pentecost. But now I believe we are in the last of the last days, what the Old Testament calls the latter days, a term that refers to that time right before Messiah comes at his second coming. But since the rapture happens before the second coming, we know we are all that much closer. As you see God setting the stage for the second coming, you know the rapture which takes place first is that much more imminent. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it opens the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John. And so because there is a unified content throughout this book, it is described not as the book of Revelations. There is no such book. I hope you know that by now. It is called the book of Revelation. It's singular in the Greek, the apocalypsis. It means the uncovering, the unveiling. That is, God has taken something that was hidden, and He has revealed. And I find it rather ironic that this book that calls itself in the opening verse, an apocalypsis, something that is revealed and opened, in many ways is the most mysterious and closed book today. Notice verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. So the greeting is from God the Father, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, and it's also from the sevenfold Spirit of God before the throne, which we saw as a reference to God the Holy Spirit. And so we studied from the prophet Isaiah seven distinct ministries of God the Holy Spirit. And so some translations paraphrase this, the sevenfold Spirit. And then in verse 5, we notice the greeting too is from Jesus Christ. And so this letter is from God the Father, God the Spirit, and from God the Son. But there is great emphasis placed on the greeting through God the Son. In verse 5, he's identified as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. And the Lord Jesus is highlighted here. Why? Because he's the hero of this book. He is the theme of this book. Death could not hold him in the grave. He is the firstborn of the dead. He is has supremacy, which is what the word firstborn, it doesn't mean the first to be created. He is the firstborn. He has supremacy over all the grave and over all this world. Now, we've seen there are other people raised from the dead, eight specifically in Scripture, three in the Old Testament, five in the New Testament, but they were only raised to life. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. He is the first one ever to be resurrected to life, to come out of the grave in a forever body, never to die again. The firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. I hope you've been released from your sins through the blood of Christ. There's no other way to be released. Furthermore, verse 9, I, John, was on the island called Patmos, because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So the ninth verse tells us he's on this island, as this map reminds us, out there in the Aegean Sea, off the coast of Turkey, it's called Patmos. Some of you have been to that place with me when we did a Footsteps of Paul tour. We went to the very cave in which John was given the revelation. It's about 10 miles long. At its widest point, it's about six miles wide. It was used by the Romans as a penal colony, 
Political prisoners were banished and sentenced there to hard labor in the quarries. So on a human level, we're told in verse 9, he's here because of the word of God and the testimony of God. He's persecuted. He's been imprisoned for the faith that he proclaims. But he's also here, according to verse 10 on this island, in the spirit. He is literally and physically in Patmos at the University of Persecution, but he's also here in the Spirit. Notice, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. So here in verse 10, John tells us it happened on Sunday, that is the Lord's Day, as he was in the Spirit. He hears this loud voice that he compares to the sound of a loud trumpet, and of course, the loud voice, we are told in verse 8, belongs to the Alpha and the Omega. And we learn in verse 17 that the Alpha and the Omega that is in view is not God the Father, but the Lord Jesus, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. He is the beginning and the end. And the words in the command in verse 11, notice, are unmistakable. Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These are literal churches. These are not epics of time. These are seven actual churches pictured here on the map in current day Turkey. So he writes specifically to seven churches, and it's not by accident. God has no coincidences. These seven churches represent various characteristics, pro and con, that churches throughout the age have had. And of course, this was not John's idea to write this book. He is not writing, well, the churches are persecuted. Maybe I can write a word of encouragement to them. No, he is commanded to write this book. It's not his choice of subject, just like Jude had one thing in mind and God had him write something entirely different. He's commanded to write this book. Mark it down. This is not John's revelation. This is God's revelation. And so we studied the five stages of pure transmission in chapter one as it goes from God the Father, to God the Son, to God's angel, to John, to the churches, and by application to all of us reading it today. And so we're told that on the Lord's day, he hears a loud voice, and he turns around, and he sees seven golden lampstands. Look at verse 13. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, one of the messianic titles in Daniel for God the Son, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Praise God, John sees him standing where? In the middle of the churches. And I'm glad that that's where he stands today. On the one hand, he stands in glory, interceding for us. On the other hand, he is here today in our midst. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And so the Bible teaches in the one hand, Christ is omnipresent, he is everywhere, but also on the Lord's day in his omnipresence, because he still has a localized body sitting in heaven at the right hand of the Father this morning, in his omnipresence in a special way, he is here this morning. Now, I know these people who say, well, you don't have to go to church to worship God. That's a half-truth. Friend, he's here in a way that he's not just in your prayer closet, though you can meet him there. He comes in a special way where two or three are gathered in his name. 
And that's why we come and we meet on the Lord's Day on Sunday. So don't ever get the idea that you don't need to come to church. That's a lie from the evil one. You need to be here and not to be in a local house of worship, if you can be, is sheer disobedience. It is forsaking your assembling together. And so in verses 14 to 18, he continues to give us a picture of the glorified Messiah who's in heaven this morning and yet present here. Notice, his head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Here's the one who had laid his head on Christ's bosom at the Last Supper. But now, 60 years later almost, he falls at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Look, you're not going to go to heaven someday and strut and say, hey, where's Jesus? I want to meet him. You'll be like John. You'll be on your face before him. And just so we wouldn't mess up this book, it's one of the few books in the Bible where God puts the outline in the book itself in Revelation 1.19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, that's the past, Write the things which are, that's the present, and the things which will take place after these things, that's the future. So according to verse 19, when you read the Revelation, it becomes very clear that it divides into three sections. Chapter 1 is describing the past, chapters 2 and 3, the present, chapters 4 through 22, the future. And I have no doubt that Revelation can be further subdivided in terms of the big picture that God has but this is his divinely inspired outline. And it really keeps you from a lot of trouble from artificial manipulation. So following the introduction or the prologue in the first eight verses, Revelation 1, 9 through 20, describes the things which you have seen. And he writes for us, and we studied it in depth, a picture and all the meaning behind each of those symbols. Remember, this is signified, it's communicated. Symbols are given throughout the Revelation, and most of the symbols are interpreted within Revelation or through the some 300 references to the Old Testament and its 404 verses. Then he says, write the things which are, the things present. That's the seven churches. So again, here's a map of the seven churches. There was a Roman road that formed like a horseshoe. So Jesus basically walks around the horseshoe. These seven churches no doubt came from Paul's ministry in Ephesus where he spent three years, a critical key city that spread out, took the Great Commission at heart, and began to plan churches in other places. Now we started in Ephesus, that's number one there on the map. I called it the formal church because while it was straight as an arrow doctrinally, they had left their first love. Verse 4, I have this against you, you have left your first love. And there are churches like that in every century, churches that are sound theologically, but the people have lost their heart and their passion and love for Jesus. From Ephesus, we went 35 miles up the road to Smyrna, and I called it the fearful church because of the persecution these saints knew. Look at verse 10. I hope you brought a Bible. I told you to. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, 
and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. It was one of two churches of these seven in which there's no reprimand, only praise, because of their willingness to lay down their lives for the Lord Jesus, for the gospel. And church history demonstrates that typically a persecuted church is a pure church because it's not popular to be a part of a persecuted church. From there, we traveled 50 miles from Smyrna to Pergamum. You could translate it either way. And I call that the faltering church because this was a church that was compromising the Word of God. And there are many churches like that today, men who step into the pulpit who are afraid to tell people the truth, afraid to do what is right. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There's a lot of churches like that today that are married to the world. Leadership just looks the other way when there are sinful issues going on in the church. Then we went 40 miles southeast of Pergamum to the church of Thyatira. I call that the false church because they were largely corrupted in that they tolerated false doctrine in their assembly. Look at verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they may commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. False doctrine always leads to false behavior. And this church would not purify its ranks. They let this heretical woman in the ranks. And there's a lot of heretical teachers, men and women alike today, and people are afraid to address them because they're afraid what people will think. Then we travel another 30 miles southeast from Tyra to Sardis. And I call that the fruitless church. Why? Because they had kind of a ho-hum spirit. And so Jesus spells out their problem here in chapter 3 and verse 1. I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. There are a lot of dead churches, even evangelical churches in America today. And maybe you came from one where nothing is happening. No life, no fruit, no conversions, no baptisms, no joy. Then we traveled another 30 miles southeast of Sardis to Philadelphia, and I call that the faithful church. That's what we want to be like, like the church in Philadelphia, chapter 3 and verse 8. Jesus said, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut because you have a little power. It's the opposite of the preceding church that had no power. Their candlestick is flickering. It's ready to go out. This church had a little power. You say, that's not a put down. No, that's a put up. Little is much when it's in the hand of God. And if he gave us too much power, we'd pop. You have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. This is a church that had an open door. God gave them opportunities. And they repeatedly walked in faith through them. Then finally, we came to the seventh church. We traveled another 50 miles southeast of Philadelphia to Laodicea. And I called this the fashionable church. They thought they were well off, but Jesus said they were wretched and miserable. Look at verses 15 and 16. Jesus said, I know your deeds, 
that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Then, beginning in chapter 4, all the way through the end of chapter 22, the Apostle John writes about the things that will take place after these things. Metatata, it's stated twice in chapter 4 and verse 1. You know there's a turning point. We're now moving to the futuristic section of the book of Revelation. After these things, I looked, a door standing open in heaven. We saw that that was the rapture. God opens the door. He invites John up, and he sees the raptured church saints. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And so it's not by accident. In this chapter, you meet the 24 elders. And we saw 24 was a representative number in Scripture of a large group. And these 24 elders represent the raptured church. By this time, they have been evaluated, they've been rewarded, and they are praising the Lord. And so after chapter 4, the seven churches are never mentioned again until they return with the Lord Jesus. Why? Because the church will not be here for the great tribulation. God is not going to beat up his bride for seven years with his own wrath and say, come on up into heaven. No, he's going to take us out. Now, there will be tribulation saints that will meet man's wrath and Satan's wrath, but God in his mercy is going to catch up his church and take us into heaven. And so when John arrives in heaven in chapter 4, verse 3, he sees God the Father himself sitting on a glorious throne. And it's like a court room. And uh, it's an awesome scene. And it's a place that is filled with praise. And so in chapter 4, uh, verses 9 and 10, we see the four living creatures and the 24 elders representing all the redeemed who've been brought to heaven by grace. And they are giving God praise for three things, glory, honor, and power as seen in his creation. Look at verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, because of your will they existed and were created. And so they are acknowledging God's right to judge the earth because God himself created the earth. And so John is taken in heaven in order to get a perspective of what God is going to do to the earth and on the earth after the church is removed. And so then we stepped into chapter 5. Same courtroom in heaven, but now praise has ceased for a moment as heavenly business is transacted. And we're given, in essence, front row seats as to what is going to happen. And so when you come into chapter 5, things begin to change. Look at 5.1. I saw on the right hand of him, that's the Father, who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now remember, the one sitting on the throne is God the Father. He holds in his right hand a scroll, a biblos, a book. It's a seven-sealed scroll. We studied it. It's the title deed to the earth. It's written on the outside and on the inside. And very simply, on the outside, it says the world loses. On the inside, it says believers win. And he takes it, and he's going to hand it to God the Son. Now notice how it unfolds. Verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? 
And then in verses 3 and 4, it tells us the loud voice that fills the whole universe. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. You say, I didn't think people cried in heaven. No, there's tears in heaven. It's in heaven we studied that God will wipe away our final tears. And so here's John, he's weeping. But then we learned in verse 5 that Jesus can open it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So Jesus is given the title deed of all of the creation. It's been kept safe in the right hand of God the Father. Adam, of course, he lost it. God had intended for Adam to rule. But because of his rebellion, he lost the title deed to rule over the earth. And so Satan now is called, small g, the God of this world. And so it was a legitimate offer that Satan makes in Matthew 4, Luke 4. You bow down and worship me, Jesus, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. But Jesus, with his own blood, purchased you, me, everyone that will believe and he provided the opportunity once again to rule on the earth. Now remember, this is a seven-sealed scroll, a legal document. And by his own blood, he has paid the price so that he can regain what the evil one has taken. And so in chapter 5 and verses 12 and 13, among other things, it shouts his deity. Look at it. Worthy is a lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing, that sevenfold blessing that could be said of God only. In every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, they've worshiped God the Father as creator in chapter 4. Now they are worshiping the Lamb as redeemer in chapter 5. Let there be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. So these people who say that Jesus never claimed to be God are just blind. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. This whole chapter shouts his deity. You might as well tear chapter 5 out of your Bible if you are rejecting the deity of Christ because it plainly affirms it. Now in chapters 6 through 18, we are told of the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 6 becomes a shock to the censors. There are sale judgments, there are trumpet judgments, and then there are bold judgments that will follow. And so we looked at these 21 judgments, and I told you it's important that you understand the structure, the architecture of these three sets of judgment or you'll get confused quite easily. And so, for instance, the first trumpet cannot come until the seventh seal is open. And the first bowl judgment cannot come until the seventh trumpet is blown. And so this first slide here shows you the seven-sealed scroll. And the first four judgments have become almost an idiom in our day, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so when people use that, even unsaved people, they're describing the advent of war or terrible events. Tomorrow, as we continue our final message in the Revelation series, Dr. Brogy will sum up the rest of Revelation prior to looking at Christ's final words in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 22. To listen again to this message in its entirety, Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and asking for program REV73. Things are looking better and better for our fall trip to Israel. The Israeli government has inoculated almost two-thirds of their population against the COVID-19 virus, and plans are in the works to reopen tourism in the Holy Land. If you'd like to join us for an 11-day trip to the Middle East, we'll be offering two separate excursions in late September and early October. Join Dr. Brogy as he helps bring the Bible alive as fellow travelers walk through many of the places occupied by King David, Moses, the Apostles, and of course, Jesus himself. All the details are online at stsisraeltour.com. Tomorrow, part two of Christ's Final Words. Join us then as we search the scriptures. <music>